never been greeted like that before i feel royal right now you're welcome I, I, you're welcome i just got it i just got it yep it's it's 1920 guys it's a 1920 <laughs> joke i i should say what what podcast this is though it's every horror movie on netflix i'm patrick i'm back here as usual with my friends chris howdy and steven hello and this week we are gonna review and discuss the original installment in a franchise that we reviewed the third installment of so, so early in the history of our podcast. That film was 1920 London Fear Strikes Again, and today we're going to talk to you about 1920. But before we get to that, like, how have you guys been doing? What's been going on? Have you been watching any good horror shit? A little bit. A little bit. A little uh, bit. A couple different, couple different things have been going on. First, I've been watching... Uh, a little bit of cold case files on netflix you guys ever watch cold case files i've heard of it i i assume that was like a like an svu law and order sort of thing what well is it's it? a it's a it's a like a docudrama sort of thing it's 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 real life cases it's not horror unless you consider like people getting horribly murdered mur- uh, horror well you just I, said horribly and 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 you can't <laughs> spell horribly without the first few letters of horrors. So. Yeah, so it's it's absolutely the it's absolutely the stuff of nightmares. I mean, it's a it's a pretty uh, by the numbers show. But the thing that really makes it stand out to me is the production values. This for what this show is, it has such good cinematography, such good uh, visuals when they're recounting the details of these thirty year old cases and everything. Uh, period decor and all the reenactments. It's it's really phenomenal for that. Uh, reason the downside is these damn cold cases they always play out the same way it's like 27 years later and they either find dna because they invented dna technology or like someone comes out of the woodwork and tells the investigators what happened 27 years after the fact that's the only way these cases get solved so it becomes a little repetitive so like uh, just to be clear that i understand the concept you know when i heard cold case files i thought this is going to be like an unsolved mystery sort of thing but we actually get a resolution in these cold cases oh yeah it's about murders and stuff that happened 30 years ago go or, or more usually usually happened in like the late 70s early 80s um and then the case was cold for 25 to 30 years and then that some brash young investigator reopened the case and said how about we test that bag for dna now that we can do that and they they find the killer and they track him down he's moved across the country he's invariably fat and on oxygen and <laughs> geriatric and they arrest him minutes before he dies wait and is this all like dramatic reenactments of this stuff happening or is it or are you actually seeing this happen for real? Oh, it's 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 all reenactments oh, okay. uh, mixed with mixed with interviews of the the actual people involved. You know, it's it's like any of these other. I don't know what else what other show to compare it to. But, Forensic you know, you have files, a mix of maybe. Archi- yeah, you have a mix of archival footage, archival photos, 
interviews with the actual people and then reenactments of the stuff no one was there to witness mm-hmm. or record. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, a de- decent show. I just wish that there were some cases where the guy would, you know, just kind of solve the case 25 years after the fact with some, like, a new perspective, some different police work, like, oh, all the witnesses mentioned this thing. What if it meant that thing? And then he goes and solves the case that way. Maybe there is a case like that, but usually it's just DNA or a whistleblower coming out of the woodwork. Gets a little repetitive. Mm. Well, have either of you watched, on, on a similar note, have either of you watched the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix? New. In no. fact, I never watched the original Unsolved Mysteries other than those compilation videos. Well, that's going to be on Peacock if you have a few extra bucks to spare to, I don't know, have NBC's line up. I don't know why you'd want that. <laughs> um, probably find Unsolved Mysteries on YouTube. But uh, the the new Unsolved Mysteries is pretty interesting because we don't have the Robert Stack intro or anything, you know, which was, you know, so moody. We don't have, like, the number you can call into. But it's um, it's kind of like taking the Errol Morris approach to what the show did in the first place with the the very dramatic, cinematic, period-accurate reenactments of these, you know, bizarre disappearances, uh, supernatural occurrences that have physical evidence left behind but remain unsolved. Mm. I recommend it. I've watched the first couple episodes. It's pretty good. Damn, you guys are going deep into the, like, quasi-reality TV this week. Yeah, true crime, the the real horror. Yeah. Chris, are you uh, mourning the loss of Chilling Adventures? Yes, except I have still yet to catch up. Like, Uh, I'm still, I only watched the first season. And so next time I get in October with some free time, I'm going to watch the rest of it. And then I will mourn. But it's still too early to mourn. I like that you say next time you get in, like, a whole one single month of the year. And, like, if this October doesn't work out, you'll watch it in another year and a half. Well, I've, I've watched and read some stuff. I've got three things... It's one more than about Patrick this. usually has. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them quickly, though. I uh, read a book that I know I told Patrick about uh, about a week ago. I read this in two sittings, which is rare. I've not been reading a lot during quarantine. My attention is very scattered. But I read this book called I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid, which is it's billed as a thriller, but I feel like that's kind of a low-key way of marketing horror these days it's 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 a like a winter road trip novel with a young 30 something couple on the edge of breaking up from the perspective of the female partner and it eventually turns into something pretty twisty and strange that you can't possibly uh predict in in the final act but man this thing just kind of sent me through the ringer thinking about the dynamics of of you know toxic relationships to you know mental health mental illness and uh it's being made into a film by charlie kaufman pretty soon here it's been cast it may have even been filmed who knows uh with with the state of hollywood these days but i can only imagine what added meta layers he's going to add to this already very meta book quite excited to see how that turns out but recommend it it's it's only like 200 something pages you can just breeze right through it and it'll chill you to the bone I'm glad you brought that up again because we talked about it. You told me about that the other day and I had forgotten about it and it sounds really interesting. So I'm going to get my hot hands on a copy of that. Yeah, I'll let you borrow it. Um, 
it's pretty good. I watched a couple of movies. Uh, one one's an in, in, in oldie, by which I mean it came out in November of last year. I finally got around to Doctor Sleep, mm. uh, the, Mike oh. Fla- the Mike Flanagan adaptation of the Stephen King sequel to The Shining. And man, the first thing I'll say is I recommend this movie. It is not perfect, but it is very watchable. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it. Don't make the mistake I did and take the shortcut. You can watch it on HBO Max, and if you pull up the movie on HBO Max and you go down to the extras, you can watch the director's cut, which is oh yeah, it's three Flanagan ou- cut. It's three hours, and I watched the two and a half hour version, and you know I already felt like that might be overkill before I get into it because I just didn't know what I was going to get into. Um, I had I had some problems with it, and from what I've read, the director's cut solves most of those. This is a fascinating movie because the book is a literary sequel to Stephen King's own The Shining. The movie is a, is a sequel to both the book and the Stanley Kubrick movie, and it is utterly fascinating to see the way that Mike Flanagan finds a way to pay homage to the movie that Stephen King hated in a way that is somehow kind of that somehow honors the book he kind of like doesn't really mention the parts of the stanley kubrick movie that deviate from the book and the way he he kind of uses you know quote-unquote period details and casting you know he's not doing a star wars princess leia thing and doing cgi faces he's casting actual actors to play shelly duvall and jack nicholson and and the boy who played danny what really Um, oh my god i didn't know that i feel like that's spoilers i had no idea that they like their likenesses appeared in the film Oh, they do. And it's seamless. Like the talent he hires and it doesn't feel like they're really doing impressions. It's really naturalistic. But what I will say is that's the least interesting thing about this whole movie. There's a whole there's a there's a cult of kind of shine like witches that have the shine that travel in caravans and abduct young people and store their essences in little bottles to keep them young forever. And like that stuff, that whole kind of cult vampire uh, element is 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 thrilling there are some really great performances um the the woman who plays uh rose the hat who's the leader of this cult is just spellbinding i think one of the great movie villains of all time after seeing this thing it's got its problems but check it out watch the director's cut i have wanted to see that since it came out i missed it in theaters unfortunately and i'm so excited it's on hbo max finally um i i do feel some trepidation about watching a three-hour version of a movie that already seems uh long but i will i'll attempt to follow your advice if i've got the time and the the gumption on my hands oh i can i I can tell you if, if the director's cut you know it's really not that much added footage when you think of it um it, it the version I saw just flew by. I had no idea I was watching a two and a half hour movie. It is is wow. utterly thrilling. You're getting something hmm. new every ten minutes. It's fantastic. Interesting. In Mike Flanagan, I trust. I will get in his car. He can take me anywhere. <laughs> I want to. I want to watch the three hour cut of Ouija Origin of Evil. Dude, I love Mike Flanagan. We need to get Mike Flanagan on the show sometime. I think that needs to be our next big goal. Yeah, when GJ was like, I have four movies on Netflix. I think I had more movies on Netflix than anybody. What about Mike Flanagan? (laughs) That man, everything he's ever done ends up on Netflix. (laughs) 
All right, Stephen, I think you had one more thing. You had three things thing. to say this about this. Be, I promise this will be super quick. Um, so it's very interesting which films are being talked about in in the zeitgeist right now because of COVID. We don't have movie theaters. We just have drive-ins. And, and this IFC Midnight movie called Relic that maybe you guys have heard of uh, has been getting a lot of press. And it's a film that I feel like would have been buried in any other summer release uh, season. But... Um, it's getting a lot of reviews now because it went to VOD. I think it's playing some drive-ins. I think Chris mentioned to me the other day that he might, he was thinking of going to see it. This is an Australian film about a, uh, it's got Emily Mortimer, who I absolutely love. Uh, she and her daughter go to check on her mother, her aging mother, and she disappeared. And they file a missing persons report. The mother comes back, but she doesn't seem quite the same it's kind of an allegory for dementia but um but it takes some pretty interesting thematic and stylistic twists and turns throughout it's very interesting in the way that it explores mental illness as a supernatural concept and i i quite enjoyed it i wouldn't say it's you know with like the in the spooky old people genre it's it's a slight cut above what you'd normally get. But I would recommend that, you know, maybe don't rent it. But if you can see it at a drive-in, I think this would be a great kind of B-movie thrill ride that'll leave you with a slight emotional gut punch at the end that you wouldn't expect otherwise from this kind of fare. Yeah, I've heard good things about that, and I'm really curious to see it. Um, I don't have much to report myself. I've been moving for the last week or so, so I've had almost no time for anything. However, I'll just, you know, take another opportunity to plug Hannibal, which is now on Netflix, starting watching the second season, rewatching, I should say, the second season. And I do feel now a little ahead of my time in multiple ways because I watched Hannibal in the first place when it was on air, loved it. And then for some reason earlier this year, by odd coincidence, we rewatched the first season before it hit Netflix. And now that it's on Netflix, I feel like I keep seeing all these pieces saying, you know, oh, Hannibal is the, you know, cult horror TV classic that everybody should be watching on Netflix. So I feel, you know, duly ahead of my time now for having gotten to Hannibal before everybody else did twice. So that's my big hipster moment of the week. You're so hip, Patrick. You're so hip. That's a fucking great show, though. I still need to watch the final season, but I've heard it's... uh... I've, I've heard it's diminishing returns. Yeah, my memory is that the second and third seasons were a steep downhill climb from the first, but that's uh, an uncommon opinion I had of it. I think people generally like the second and third seasons, and I have been liking the second on this rewatch, so we'll see how it continues to stick with me. But let's switch gears. Wait, I'm back. I got one more thing. I, uh, oh, I also watched the the Beach House on Shutter. Oh yes. Oh yeah. It was uh you know it was decent. Um, I wouldn't tell you to go out of your way to see it, but if you're interested, uh, you could do worse. There were some things I liked, some things I didn't like. Uh, you know your mileage may vary. But what's interesting is Shutter came out with that a couple weeks ago, and then they just came out with another movie called Lake of Death, which uh-huh. looks just like the beach house it does it looks almost <laughs> identical if you play those trailers on top of each other yeah it's, it's kind of cute that they it's like an armageddon deep impact situation uh on shutter <laughs> well they're, they're they're feeling those summer vibes you know it's summertime yeah. you go down to the lake house you go to the beach house you know yeah it's like you you go to the cottage you get you know you have some beers you 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 go out on the water hopefully not in that order and then you're winding <laughs> down at the end of the night and you're like let's just watch a movie where some people where some stuff comes out of the water and kills people 
So the the lake house that's kind of a that's like a viral outbreak movie, right? Um, it's it's a uh, it's a meditation on uh, extremophile forms of life. Oh, extremophile. Okay. Extremophiles are are those organisms that uh, thrive in in extreme environments. Mm. And our 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 hero our our hero in the the beach house is a young college student who's like trying to go to grad school to study such organisms. But she ends up getting a little bit of a real life uh, study, I guess, in, mm. in, the, in the material. They sh- maybe should have called it like the Cliff House or something. If that's if that's the case, like the beach house just sounds so tame and, and generic. Well, I could second guess movie titles all day, and I'm sure I will as we get into our discussion <laughs> yes. of the movie we watched this week. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It takes place in 1920, man. I mean, mostly. But like, like think of a period piece. Like, what if Barry Lyndon was called like, I don't know, like 1676? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know when that takes place. Yeah, but. I mean, it is interesting that you know, there's. Yeah, there are so many very evocative titles that you could give this film, and especially the the third installment that we watched, 1920 London, Fear Strikes Again. You know, at least that tells you something. At the very least, it tells you horror, horror period piece. But this is just, here's a year. Not a year that anyone associates with anything, much less associates with this event, which is didn't happen and is about ghosts in the haunted mansion. But were there like notable events that we're just ignorant of in India in 1920? You know, maybe this date does have more significance if you're Indian. The movie gets into it, and this is not a spoiler, but you know the the uh, the residents of of India revolted against the British colonists. But I don't know if that like was specific to that year. I really but that was in well, like no, the, that was that was in the 19th century. Oh, that's right. That was the so flashback. My, there's fuck. a flashback yeah. to that. So it's like maybe this movie is set in 1920 because they wanted to play off of that event. And then for story reasons, they decided this one had to be set in the 1920s. I don't know. I think maybe they were just really proud because I know uh, according to Wikipedia, the director was proud to have created such a uh, ambitious period piece horror film uh, which was somewhat unique so maybe giving it the year as a title uh, was meant to emphasize that so let me try and give it a quick chris style uh efficient setup here uh of our plot summary uh essentially the events of the film revolve around a house a giant old uh british style mansion that seems to be haunted an architect comes into it in the opening scene who is supposed to uh, demolish it and turn it into a hotel he gets fucked over by some ghosts and is dispensed with and forgotten about very quickly and then we spend most of the film uh focusing on his successor uh who's a young man uh recently married to uh his wife and they move in and are subsequently also haunted because uh the ghosts in the the mansion don't seem to be too happy about the plan to demolish it and that's basically the setup for all two hours and 24 minutes of 1920 that's pretty succinct and yeah that's it i don't know man it takes a long time before this really picks up interest uh before things start to get spooky and when things are spooky they're spooky indeed but it is few and far between until the final act which is effectively almost an hour of this movie (laughs) yeah i mean it's interesting it (laughs) so 1920 london fear strikes again you know for the uninitiated uh the thing we all loved about it was jay 
We talk about Jay all the time. We've got the fucking music cue. He's a delightful exorcist character who is just enjoyably really badass. But Jay doesn't show up until the halfway point of that movie. And that, no, that's not true at all. What? Jay doesn't show no. up until later into the movie, right? He shows up like 20 minutes into that movie. What happens at the... There's something that happens at the halfway point of Fear Strikes Again. The, the halfway point... Well, there's the intermission where you find out Jay's true intentions yeah. and Jay's Jay's ultimate betrayal. But Jay's been there for a while at that point. Oh, that's right. Okay. The one parallel that I did detect between the two, other than them both being Bollywood horror movies, is that suddenly things kick into some sort of higher gear about halfway through in a way that was somewhat shocking to me in both films. Yeah, that's that's true. That's um, uh, around the halfway point of this movie, things start happening. The spooky stuff escalates from just people walking around, uh, looking at shadows in the dark, and very you know that, that is that same shit that I hate in every movie. People just walking through the dark, getting vaguely spooked. It's boring as hell. We got to do something about this. Um, <laughs> and but then you know things do start picking up. I, they do not pick up like they pick up in 1920 London. Fear strikes. No. Again, but they certainly pick up. The interesting thing is, 1920 London, Fear Strikes Again is kind of reviled. Like, people don't like that movie. Like, they're like, oh, well, like, that movie's not as good as 1920. Are you fucking kidding me? I disagree. I think 1920 London is a blast and very creative. And this movie seems well made but very rote especially for us western audiences that have already seen the exorcist and everything like this movie our friend william friedkin should be getting some royalties off of 1920. <laughs> yeah yeah totally sure. and, and blatty as well there's a lot of questions about why this uh exists and i'm looking at the filmography of vikram bhatt who is the director of 1920 okay uh and if you look at his filmography on wikipedia he's made a whole bunch of movies since the 90s but about half of them say in the notes that they're either inspired or based on uh popular western movies well, semi-popular. Like, he made a movie called Germ that is based on Double Jeopardy, the Ashley, uh, uh, the, uh, Ashley Judd, Tommy Lee Jones thriller. Oh, yeah. Uh, he made a movie apparently based on There's Something About Mary, The Whole Nine Yards, What Lies Beneath. Oh, my God. Uh, I want to see all of these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it, it's kind of interesting. So, maybe that's just what he does. What would What Lies Beneath be? Or Something About Mary with, like, musical numbers in the <laughs> I mean, well, I, guess, I, I, th- I think it more or less makes sense. You know, I mean, our uh, film industry certainly remakes all kinds of films from other countries. And I, I guess I'm not too surprised that Bollywood does the same thing with Western films. And I mean, you know, certainly this isn't remaking The Exorcist word for word, but there are certainly elements clearly uh, borrowed from The Exorcist. I, I want to spend a little bit of time, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, about how this film looks. Um, I mean, it was especially jarring after seeing 1920 London, which is like a pretty, you know, by Bollywood standards and modern standards in general, like a pretty polished looking movie. This film at times, like, I feel like they were actually using equipment from the 50s and 60s to shoot this. It looked like they were actually using like the makeup, lighting and camera like camera lenses of that era, which I thought was a really kind of cool choice for a period film. Um, obviously 
you know, there weren't many films being made in 1920, uh, and those that were being made were pretty rudimentary and they were black and white, but I really appreciated the cinematography of this, that it, it did harken back to an earlier era of cinema, and that did lend it, like, it, it felt kind of transportive to me in that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it looks like it was made in 1920 exactly, but it certainly looks like it was made much longer ago than 2008, um, and I'm not sure whether that's a deliberate creative choice or just the limitations of what they had to work with. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the period detail in both the production design and also that feeling that this was a movie that came from an earlier era than 2008 when it actually came out, which <laughs> made the occasional CGI effect look uh, even more jarring and out of oh, place. Oh yeah, we, we've, we've got like like Casper and the Friendly Ghost CGI effects oh, in this movie. Which, oh yeah. Like I, I haven't seen a haunted house this dependent on like computer generated ghosts since Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> There's not was, that many computer generated ghosts. <laughs> but it was pretty it was pretty fascinating that you know, again, Patrick, I like what you said. I had this uh, similar thought while watching this. I don't know if that was the limitations of what technology was available, but there were shots that looked like they were from like a Powell Pressburger movie like The Red Shoes or something from the 50s. Like and I I if that was because of the limitation of available technology, whatever, it, it worked really well for me. I, I felt like it transported me to a different era in a way that I have not really ever seen in any other period piece. I don't really know what you guys are talking about, to be honest. Um, I didn't think it looked particularly unique. I did. It did seem to be shot on film, and I thought that the cinematography was quite good throughout. Um, but other than that, I didn't think there was anything that noteworthy about the look of it there's some super i mentioned barry linden earlier and not by coincidence like that was a movie i thought of watching this a lot there's a lot of especially the outdoor stuff is like really wide lenses yeah super gauzy looking only yeah. natural light you know they're not using any any sort of studio lighting out outdoors like you would normally do in a film in you know the modern era or 2008 there are a lot of dramatic like resplendent kind of wide shots that look almost like a painting and yeah reminded me weirdly of uh Kubrick or, or something like that I just kept going I, I literally kind of caught myself a couple of times going all right 2008 what else came out in 2008 the Dark Knight came out in 2008 oh know? wow I, yeah whatever I, I don't know the Dark Knight is the first one that comes to mind for whatever reason to me and I'm just like this does not look like that you know it looks it just looks older for some reason yeah, so the, so it, it it's got an interesting look to it. Uh, your mileage may vary. I want to talk about the opening of this. You know, before we get into anything more, I really enjoyed the kind of uh, the prelude to this movie, where the second architect uh, who's who's involved with this mansion gets gets murdered by the ghost. I Dude. I, I was into this immediately. Like it, even though it's like it's so like hoary and cheesy. Like I've seen this in a million movies. Like it was shot with such visual flair and it happened so quickly, like the way that he was haunted and died that I was like screaming. I and I'm disappointed that I had to wait like another hour after that for more of this kind of action. But can we go even earlier than that? I was just delighted that this movie, the very first thing you see before studio logos or anything are two credits that say special appearance by, and I forget oh, and the actor's appearance. name, and then friendly appearance by. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a translation thing, but I still just loved the uh, expression friendly appearance by an actor. Well, I love that. 
Okay, but we okay. I I'm so glad you brought that up because that was my first note, and that's a little different from the translation errors that we see in the subtitles. Uh, anybody can just update those subtitles at any time and send a new file to Netflix or what the fuck ever. Like that credit was like printed on film. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that was a real choice there. Well, it's yeah, it's especially fascinating, and I I mean it may just be like a a regional a cultural thing but we don't see any credits for the film for another several minutes but we get these two credits for these two actors before anything else i was just fascinated by that yeah i think that's just probably a distribution wart like i i think this movie has been altered since it was in the cinema of india uh one of my the things that makes me say that is that there's no intermission in it unlike 1920 london which famously has an intermission Uh, i Um, missed that most Bollywood films have an intermission. I know because I was tired. I was planning to go to bed at intermission, and then there was no intermission, so I just stayed up for the two hours and 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> but So I think this movie has gone through some editing, and it wouldn't surprise me if the opening credits got chopped or whatever uh, before it made its way onto Netflix. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, we've definitely seen stranger or at least equally strange on netflix but i i don't know who those actors i i've been i tried to google them but i didn't really uh i wasn't really able to recognize them but i was wondering if there was like a scream sort of situation happening in this opening scene where we spend so much time with this man who's come to the house to build the hotel or whatever and then yeah he he dies about 10 minutes or so into the movie it's kind of shocking and i was wondering if this was like a name actor or something and that that it was really a bait and switch sort of situation in the movie could have been a psycho situation you know maybe maybe that played better for for local audiences but but i love that opening scene i especially love that kill where where the architect gets killed by flying ghost glass you know like the the stained glass window just like shatters and the shards go flying into his body um, oh man, that was that was some of the CGI that uh, did not do it for me. I mean, that opening scene was fine. I, I don't think I I did not respond to it the way you did. I'll put it that way. Oh, I mean, I okay. Let's be honest. I sat down to watch 1920. Was I thrilled to watch this movie? Absolutely not. Why not? Um, it, it felt like homework to me because I didn't even like 1920 London. That's um, true. You did famously give it a screw it. I think is is that famous? Um, but yes, I did give it a screw it, but, but I was like, all right, this is a bonkers, you know, just kind of gonzo kill that I've never seen in a horror movie before. I was all in, and I didn't expect anything better than the CGI that we had before our eyes. So I became fascinated very early on with our hero, Arjun, 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 um, who early on is like running away with his bride uh, he is seen early on. It's kind of unclear to me. And again, this may be a cultural thing that I may just be misunderstanding or failing to understand because I'm American, but he seems to be almost a monk or involved in some sort of holy pursuit early on where he's just reciting these mantras, worshiping Lord Hanuman, who is one of the Hindu deities. And then he gives that all up. He says, fuck Hanuman, fuck God. I'm going away to be with my love, Lisa. And he gives this like monologue at one point because her, or wait, his dad? No, her dad. 
His dad stops his dad. them. Yeah, his dad stops them, and he's like, fuck this. We're going to kill Lisa. You can't be with her. And he gives this, like, just old Hollywood style. This is another thing that really felt like a throwback to me. He just gives this, like, wide-legged, like, big stance, like, almost James Dean-esque monologue oh, about yeah. how Jimmy he's... Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart monologue about how he's renouncing God to be with his love. And I was like, oh, I'm all in for this. Except you'd never see Jimmy Stewart renounce God in a movie like this. It was yeah. it was shocking to me. And back to the look of this movie, that whole sequence where they get pulled over on the road looked like straight out of the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments. It was like early yeah. Technicolor. Just like yes. super classic Hollywood looking. I loved it. Loved every minute of it. Yeah, the background is like this royal blue. It just it feels slightly unnatural and heightened in in a weirdly organic way. Yeah, it was a great scene and it was so bonkers too. It's like, yeah, you know, he's trying to elope with uh with Lisa and it goes against his whole family tradition because she is of uh mixed ancestry, British and Indian together, which is very controversial in his family, I guess, and culturally. Uh there may also be a religious element to it. Uh his dad and a bunch of his dad's goons stop him and try to tie her up to a car and set the car on fire which is kind of a strange way to to do it but that's uh, <laughs> yeah. um, he whatever he floats goes, your boat he goes batshit he gets jumped by like 10 guys and just starts fighting them like neo and yes and then he basically says you know what i i renounce my family and i renounce god and i'm gonna be with lisa and and then there's even a follow-up scene where he's with lisa and she's like or, or so did you renounce god or what he's like you know what any god that that serves to serves these purposes and and creates this suffering and tries to deny this and is used like this is not a god i want anything to do with mm. and i kept Thinking about this, and, and we can't really have a full discussion about this till we get into the spoiler room, but for at least the vast majority of this movie, he is a really strong atheist hero. Yeah. And I was like, when have I seen this in a movie before? Never. Like, Let alone uh, in an Indian film. I was, I was so excited about that. And oh, like relatable, at least, you know, to, to my sensibilities. I mean, I guess like Han Solo is maybe the closest example to like a, a, a avowed atheist hero, but it's like that's something you just don't see, like like a staunch atheist who where that's part of his character. Well, in Han Solo, <laughs> like we're we're, I mean, we're dealing with a universe in which there's not like the traditional god that Christians believe in in the Star Wars movies. So it's even more shocking just to see that kind of laid bare in like a realistic setting. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it I mean and it is laid bare only as set up to resoundingly repudiate that concept later on in the film. Well, spoilers. But it was still yeah, spoilers. Um but it was still it was still fun to see that moment. I mean also being eh, not quite an atheist, but close myself. It was it was fun to see that moment and uh yeah, it was a little bit of a fist pumper for me. 
it just made me wish that you know like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with, with all the diversity and inclusion that is in the cast of characters in the, the in the MCU, what if Captain America was just like, you know what? I'm an atheist. God doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there have been some anti-God statements in the in the MCU. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, get back to me on that. I feel I, like I, I should I, have. I feel like I should have an answer on that already. But no, I, I want. I, I guess. I guess we can't do Iron Man anymore. But uh, I, he would have been a good candidate. But like Iron Man or Captain. Captain America. I want them to to wait. Why can't we God. do Iron Man anymore? Well, spoilers. I can't say why we can't work with him anymore. Oh, but I mean, he's still a potentially atheist character in the Marvel universe. Yeah, but, but he never says so. He seems like he could have been. Oh, and, uh, and, oh and, you want and, a character to just like come out? You want fucking? I want representation. I don't want this J.K. Rowling shit where it's like, yeah, that character was gay, but we only told you after the fact and it never affected the character or the storytelling at all. <laughs> yeah, you want, like, fucking Black Widow to just walk out and renounce God. Yeah, yeah, and then, like, to... <laughs> it's ridiculous, but yeah, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine. All right, well, anyways, they wind up at this house... <sighs> I, I, I'm for some reason I'm struggling a little bit to talk about things prior to the twist. You know who I do like. You know who I liked was maybe my favorite character in this whole movie. Who may even be the secret J of this movie is Balvant. Oh, Who's that? really? The, pa- the oh the the, the patsy the, servant guy. Yeah, servant guy. Yeah, the servant who is supposed to watch over the mansion for the like fucking rich fat cat owner of the mansion and he knows shit is going wrong in the mansion he knows there's a curse but the owner tells him don't fucking tell arjun and lisa about this because they'll bail here's some money keep your mouth shut and i oh, it was, pays him off michael cohen style it's crazy i was drawn yep. in by that guy's performance it was probably the most naturalistic performance in the movie for me and i don't know i, I just i enjoyed his kind of his character's struggle and just the way you could see that struggle in his face and i, I, don't, know, I don't know i enjoyed it i related to it he's a good actor he's a slight very slight comic relief you know like he's a little bit his performance is a little bit more exaggerated than anyone else in the film Oh, I disagree. I think you're mixing him up with the, like, sort of cackling dude who welcomes the architect at the beginning. Or is that Balvant, too? That's him, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, his performance and his character kind of evolve and change as, yeah, the, as the movie goes along. It's multitudes. Because at first, he's just like, he literally has this sort of cartoonish, like, ha, 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 laugh. And later in the movie, I, I don't know, at least to me, he came off as a much more natural human character. All right. To to the degree that even I mean obviously I just I thought those were two separate characters but it was the same guy. I was uh fascinated with the priest, the horny priest um in this oh, horny man. priest. Well, he okay, so there have he asks uh Lisa if she's going to attend the Sunday mass alone or with her husband. And then we start to understand that she's not feeling so great about the marriage and she's feeling like, like she doesn't really, really like the guy that she's stuck with. And, and she sees, she sees, what is it like 
anger and love in his eyes at the same time for the first time and is like creeped out by it. But I feel like the priest was coming on to her in that early sequence. Oh, I found that no, 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 the priest was saying, not. hey, aren't you going to come to church? Aren't you Aren't you and your husband going to come to church? And that scene is there so that we understand the, the tension between her as a woman of faith and him as an atheist hero. Um, yeah, he was trying to find out both her and her husband's religious beliefs and if they were yeah you've obviously never joining the flock priest uh, <laughs> you... <laughs> i was, I was ra- raised catholic and i've learned not to trust priests I, I don't think i need to elaborate on that any further well, so maybe you that's go, why i read it i'm bringing my own baggage into this maybe if, if you ever go and you talk at that length with someone who leads a congregation they often will ask you if you're going to come to the congregation I did not like the priest, but I guess I did find him interesting. It was an interesting performance. There's so much more to talk about about this movie. I mean, we're talking about a movie that's, you know, two hours and 20 minutes and some change. It spans like 60 years, at least two religions, uh, (laughs) four families, 12 horses, six mansions there's so no, there's just is... one mansion what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> all right there's just one mansion. There's one mansion that's the size of six mansions this thing is three massive. mansion three mansion architects um <laughs> there's there's so much to get into i don't know if two countries much more of it certainly yes. incorporates two I mean, countries i think we've said enough before we review it i mean basically the gist is we we kind of know what's going to happen we in the prelude we see the the second architect get killed by the ghost we see this young hopeful couple uh who have renounced religion and in favor of each other come in and and, and the husband is idealistic he's going to demolish this thing turn it into a hotel at the behest of the owner the wife is having second thoughts and then she starts she starts seeing things that he isn't seeing in the place. She she starts to become haunted. I feel like that's all we can really say before we dive into what this movie actually is. Yeah, I just want to add, though, that I really liked that tension when it was there. And it was it only brought up a few times the tension about, like, should we be demolishing this beautiful historic mansion to put up a hotel? Um, that was an interesting idea. And they kind of debate it a couple times. And the husband is like... Listen, it's only beautiful because you can't see the beautiful hotel that's in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I really like that stuff. And and maybe they were trying to get at a theme about, you know, old versus new, tradition versus, you know, modernity or whatever. Um, that's a big I maybe, know. but I, I like where you're it's going. It's a big maybe. Yeah, it's a big maybe. I think, it's not important. I think their minds were much more on themes of religion and uh, the tension between uh, Britain and India, but... Well, well that's the same that ties thing. in. That ties that's in what perfectly with what Chris is saying. Yeah. But I just don't think that... Damn that, it, I, I just made that... Chris's point for him. <laughs> Fuck. Ah, yeah, I mean, especially, especially when you bring in, like, all the, like, colonialism yeah. uh, elements. You know, we're talking about an old... Uh, old mansion, which I don't know who owned the mansion, uh, but you know it's 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 basically going to become a hotel for tourists. You know, this movie is trying to reconcile the trauma of the past with uh, the new ways of the present. The present being 1920. Well, and speaking <laughs> of movies that uh, this movie uh, references slash rips off, and also uh, speaking of a movie that we already talked about once today, this gave me big Shining vibes. You know, I mean, oh yes. Uh, Totally. A hapless, a hapless couple, uh, sort of temporarily taking uh, care of a mansion and a house that they really don't have a clue the full extent of its uh, malevolence. 
uh, yeah, big shining vibes. Big shining vibes. I wrote that in my notes. I felt that too. I don't feel like it really paid off on that, but that certainly seemed to be an influence. He's staying at the hotel to do a job, and they're there for an incredible length of time. But we never really see him working on anything. And right. he seems to be—he seems to be. I mean, he doesn't go mad, but he becomes different from the woman she. Or he, sorry, let me recast that. He becomes different from the man she fell in love with, and she notices changes in him and starts falling out of love with him and and distrusting him. That's very shining. Something else I found out on Wikipedia is that the director of this movie, uh, Vikram Bhatt, he stepped away from the franchise, but he returned in 2018 to direct 1921. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Same shit, different year. And the poster (laughs) for 1921, this is hilarious. The tagline for 1921 is a decade after 1920. What? <laughs> what? Yes. Was it a literal Be- decade in real time since those yes. movies had come out? Yes. No that's way. why. That's why it's that. It's so it came out oh. in 2018, uh, ten years after 1920. Oh. But to call it 1921, a decade after 1920, amuses me to no end. I love it. I'm fascinated though that this has become a franchise despite the fact that i mean judging by the the critical response from india no one seems to like these movies that much i mean even the response to 1920 the original was pretty mixed and as we talked about critics in india kind of dragged 1920 london fear strikes again i forget what the second one how that was received but i don't think this has been a particularly well-received franchise but it just keeps going it's like fucking tyler perry well, Patrick, I was going to say, that's a great example. If uh, if American cinema followed the opinions of critics, I don't think we'd have, like, three Trolls movies <laughs> right now. And this movie, it was a success. It made over twice its budget it's a money maker. box office. Yeah. It's a moneymaker. It's the rush hour of India. <laughs> All right, well, let's review this fucking shit, and then we'll, uh, we'll remove the doors from the spoiler room so we can get in there, and uh, we'll talk about all the spoilers for this thing. Uh, I want to go first. Can I go first? Yeah, Chris, please, by all means. All right, I'm going to give it a cue it. Um, I, I was looking for a way to give it a view it because I thought that there were some elements of it that were a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, it is way too long for what it is. Uh, at least half of the movie is very uninspired. It's kind of just rehashing uh, horror movie tropes that we've seen before, and that's not very interesting. Um, you know, there's some good spooks there's some fun there's some subplots that held my attention uh i the it really picks up in the last 45 minutes or so for me um you know you could probably just watch the first 15 minutes and the last 45 minutes and have a good time with this movie but it's it's the rest of it you do not have to go there so i'll give it a cue it can i go next yes I'm going to give it a screw it. I feel like there's maybe an hour of movie in this two hours and 20 minutes. And I've seen it before and I've seen it done better. Um, There's some interesting shit in here, though. Like, I will say I'm not a huge fan of The Exorcist. Some of the possession stuff that ends up happening later in the film was actually like pretty unsettling in a way that I've not found. I did not find the exorcist to be on any of the numerous times I've watched it. Uh, but overall this thing is, is just 
it's too long. It's unfocused. I can see how to an audience who is not familiar with the American, you know, cinema horror tropes that, that we've been raised on that this could be kind of exciting, but um, like, unless you're a Bollywood completist, I would not recommend seeking this thing out. Screw it. Patrick. If you are a longtime dedicated Amon listener and you are a 1920 London Fear Strikes Again aficionado, I guess I can give it a higher cue it. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. There are a few qualities to recommend it. I can't quite give it a view it, though, because goddamn, it is draggy in stretches. And, oh boy, that's a long two and a half hours. So, uh, you know, either way, cue it. Anyways, we got to get down to the spoiler room and spoil everything. But before we go down there, it is my duty, as always, to remind you to go follow Amoncast on your social media feeds. We're on all the social networks, whichever ones you like. Also, go to every... Yeah. Also, go to everyhorrormovieonnetflix.com, click the merch store link, and you can get our t-shirts, you can get our sweet art on all kinds of different products, coffee mugs, you know, whatever floats your boat. Condoms. Condoms, condoms. We really got to get Public on that. They got to get some condoms out there. And, of course, also go to your podcast provider of choice, rate us, review us, tell your friends about us. It helps people find the show. And... You know, we, we like to see that stuff. It, uh, it brightens our day. So help us out if you feel so inclined. All right. You gentlemen ready to go down to the spoiler room? Let's see if that door opens this time of night. Yeah, we better hurry up before uh, someone turns it into a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We're down here in the spoiler room, and we're about to spoil everything about 1920. But first, we completely forgot to mention a very Amon-relevant note at the top of the show that uh, since we saw you last, we played the video game adaptation of the last movie we reviewed, Don't Knock Twice, which shockingly has a video game adaptation. Yeah. Who fucking knew? I want to see video game adaptations of Anti-Birth. I yes. want to see anguish uh have a video game adaptation no. maybe that could just be like tony hawk's pro skater <laughs> i love patrick's like in a in a sleepy community just uh, try not to get hit by the I mean, fucking car that's that's your goal i could, I like could go all day i mean i want to see at the devil's door i, w- <laughs> I want to see all this i want to see atu blanco i want to see gj ectern camps the car road to revenge the game oh my god yes and you play the car and you're trying to get the sympathy of <laughs> Of your ex girlfriend, oh, oh, I man. was, I was thinking you could. I was thinking it would be like multiplayer, and you could play as one of the four henchmen. Like you could be Ash, Crash, Slash, or Burn, or whatever their names were. Colt. You could. Uh, you could. You play as the car. You play as the car, and you drive around trying to hit as many people as you can. But if you hit too many people, the sympathy meter goes down of, <laughs> of Bay. So you have to balance your bloodlust <laughs> with the sympathy of Bay. <laughs> well, all these ideas sound so much more exciting than Don't Knock Twice the game was. It took about, I don't know, an hour or two hours or something to play, and you just walk around and gather shit, and then there's a very anticlimactic ending 
Uh, and it's definitely optimized for VR, which we did not play it in. But it's still, it looks like shit. I mean, the graphics are terrible, especially considering this game cost $20. $20 on the PlayStation Out of Network my store. pocket. Out of your pocket. 20 bones. And 20 Patrick big literally ones. finished it, and Patrick just immediately deleted it dramatically. <laughs> Did I? Yes. I completely forgot that I did that. <laughs> like rage deleted it as soon as it was over. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So if I wanted to play that again, I would have to buy it again now. No, you still own it. You'd have to download oh, it again. Okay. So oh, if, fine. So so we can play again and get the good ending next time. Awesome! I can't wait. Yeah, there's two endings apparently. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. And also apologies to anybody who uh, tried to watch our live stream video of that uh occasion because apparently the audio was not super great but it'll be better the next time that we play a video game adaptation of one of the films that we watch it wasn't my fault i'm not apologizing speaking of things that don't work out let's talk about the ending to 1920 i don't even know if that's a great segue because you know i guess things work out okay in the end depends on your views about faith Yes, it does, it does depend on your views about faith. Let, let me let me just get, hit the plot points of this. Do things work out in the end? It depends on if you're Jesus Christ or Lord Hanuman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so it's kind of funny how we were a little bit coy about that. We kept talking about how this movie riffs um, on The Exorcist, uh, but we we didn't really. We were very coy about the fact that Lisa gets fucking possessed. That's basically what the movie's well, about. So and I just want to say, like, if you read about this movie at all online, just looking for like a brief synopsis, it's like very casually referenced that this movie is like inspired by the exorcist. So like I knew for a fucking hour and a half of this movie that she's going to get possessed and it doesn't happen until the last 15 minutes. Well, that's why I don't read stuff before I watch these movies, because I wasn't expecting it. And that's when things really picked up for me. It's a haunted house movie for half the runtime. Then at about the halfway mark, our hero, our atheist hero, our June, uh, finds Lisa possessed. I don't have to tell you what that means. You know what it means. She's possessed. They do everything. I don't have to tell you what they did. They went to the hospital. They they tried the medical solutions. They tried the religious solutions. It didn't work. So the, the twists and turns come when we r- figure out the history of the house. So basically what happened is 60 years prior to 1920, you can do the math on that one, during uh, one of the uh, revolts in India between the uh, Indian nationals and the, the British colonizers, um, there was a family that lived in the house, most notably uh, Gayatri, a beautiful, I don't know how old she would be at the time, but you know, young woman. Uh, we know her because she has a 10-foot portrait on the wall in the creepy piano parlor that's been walled off from the rest oh, of the house. Oh, we hear her voice several times throughout the film. It comes out of a phonograph at one point repeatedly. Yeah, we hear people yeah. saying her name, etc. Anyway, um, Gayatri and her family took in a, uh, a British Indian uh, defector. We were turning from war. Long story short, and this is played, this is high drama. This was one of the actually most interesting segments of the movie for me. We find out that he actually isn't a defector, that he's actually selling out all the Indian soldiers on behalf of the British. He's a spy. So a bunch he's of a Indian spy. He's a spy. That's a better way to put it. He's just a fucking spy. Piece of shit. So he gets, 
he gets a spy's death. He is hanged in the piano parlor by uh, out, out of revenge. Um, but he and uh, Gayatri had a little bit of a fling, uh, a fling motivated largely by Gayatri trying to stall him and distract him for the cavalry to show up yeah. and hang him. And so in his dying breaths, he swears revenge on Gayatri. Now it's 60 years later, and coincidentally, Gayatri grew up, got old, died, and died on the same day that our hero, Lisa, was born. And she is the reincarnated spirit of Gayatri. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, so there's so many things to dig into out of what you just talked about. But I think it's worth noting that all this takes place we learn all this in a flashback that lasts what at least a half hour like this is a lengthy section of the film we we live with these characters we get to know these characters in this flashback it's no you know brief in and out kind of thing oh yeah this is not a, yeah this is this is lengthy this is a mini it movie is, it, this, it yeah. does feel like it's from another movie and i found it to be exhaustive and exhausting like there's no, oh, I there's no it. reason that that couldn't have like in a movie like this. I'm not a fan of like just kind of blatant exposition, but I rather would have had some of that so we could speed things up a bit. That said, the the storytelling in that half hour is so much tighter than in the rest of this two hour twenty minute. It minute is, movie. but the rest um, of this movie didn't really set me up to appreciate that kind of storytelling. <laughs> And it was interesting. And the spy character is creepy. He kind of looks like, I don't know, David Blaine crossed with Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> He's got this like natty, wow. curly hair coming down over his face. He's got these eyes that look like he's got an evil he's got soul. A, he's got a limp, so, like a fake limp, like he's been injured in the war. <laughs> I actually but, kind of liked this sequence, too. I, I just liked the ambition of it, of just delving into this sort of character-rich lengthy flashback explaining how this all came to be and you know steven you said that you felt the rest of the movie didn't set you up to enjoy this i almost kind of felt like it did along the lines that chris mentioned there wasn't this kind of depth or you know relative richness in the rest of the film and so when i got it all of a sudden it was almost like a weird little treat despite the fact that I was starting to get a little tired with the overall running time at that point, I just, I found it a really interesting and, uh, you know, truly ambitious sort of diversion from the main event. But man, like, okay. I, I love hearing that, that you guys really enjoy this, but Jesus Christ, an hour and a half into a movie, a movie suddenly switches gears and shows you something that they could have told you in like, three lines of dialogue i was i was so fucking pissed <laughs> so pissed i can appreciate i, can, I, can, I think that's i can kinda... appreciate it like like disconnected from the rest of the film but like that's that's like some of the worst pacing i have ever encountered in a movie in my life <laughs> No, I love it. And you know what? This is this is one of the great things about watching every horror movie on Netflix. And, you know, this isn't our first uh, trip to Bollywood on this show. So it's like I feel like we're kind of desensitized to some of the stylistic things that happen in these Bollywood movies. But, like, that's just that's something you would just never see in your movie watching life, if not for movies like this. Like, yeah, let's just again, it could have been three or four lines of dialogue. But I'm so glad it wasn't. They're just like, oh, wait, here's a flashback. Settle in. We're going to tell you a fucking tale. Settle settle You've already settled into the... You've already experienced the length of a normal movie. Now, if you can find a way to get deeper into your couch, please do so. (laughs) 
But if I run the thought experiment where, you know, Arjun goes to see the old woman who lived these events 60 years ago, and she just tells him this story in three lines, I don't care. You know, we've talked so many times before about how these things are less interesting when you just explain them in some dialogue. And, you know, I I guess ostensibly it's not really that different to explain it in a 30-minute flashback, but I enjoyed it a lot more, and I was like, okay, this actually feels like there's a reason for this to have happened, and I I actually care about this situation more as a result rather than just going to see the magical old woman explain why the haunting has been happening. and the drama of the past informs the drama of the present, and it kind of increases the stakes for the finale of the movie. I just want to say, if this movie had had an intermission, like the other 1920 movie we reviewed on the podcast... It, it probably did before it got into Netflix. It, well, that wasn't my experience with it, though. But if it had, it would have... I would know that, like, all right, I can take a break or I can finish this tomorrow and expect, like, kind of a different vibe when I get back into it. Instead, I watched this whole thing front to back in one sitting and it just did not play well. And you guys are you guys are saying you cared more about the origin of the ghost after seeing that. I I cared less. I just found it to be kind of kind of banal and boring, this explanation. I, I mean, look, if you want to add your own intermission, do it around like the hour 15 mark to the hour 18 mark when she's first getting possessed and the priest is seeing stigmata in the window, but before they go to the doctor's office. That's your intermission. Pretend pretend you hear the J stinger and it says intermission. All right, so let me let me tell you what happens, though. After we get this huge exposition dump, um, it, it's it's pretty simple. Uh, basically, they have a showdown. Oh, wait, There's actually, artificial. Actually, can we? I have one more like big thing. If we're kind of oh, like shit. moving sequentially, can I throw in one other big point sure. about the flashback sequence? So the other thing that really <laughs> threw me off, and obviously these these movies, Bollywood movies, stop dead for musical numbers, and they're of varying quality. It's just the way things work. But uh, the musical number where Gayatri was uh, sort of romancing slash seducing the uh, evil spy with the intent of, uh, you know, basically uh, kind of running out the clock until the cavalry arrived, as Chris put it. Yeah. It was really weird to me because you have this sort of sweet pop song about love and so often these songs in this movie and and other bollywood movies that we've seen very explicitly explain what the characters are thinking um and this song is basically just a a love song a love ballad but there's you know i i don't think we're supposed to think she's in love with this guy she's leading him on you know that's the whole Point. I mean, it's 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 tantamount to rape, practically. Yes, I mean, exactly. it's like this is you know, and like her her eyes are you know tearing up when she closes the bedroom door to to, to bang this guy. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. the The lyrics are pretty, uh, you know. Well, generic. we okay, it's Patrick. I'm so glad you brought that up because we haven't talked about any of the musical numbers in this movie, and they're all superfluous. Like I was like yeah. the musical numbers in 1920 London, like at least feel like they, they, you know, they kind of, they kind of pause the story, but like slightly move it forward or at least like give you moments to like, 
indulge in how the characters react to each other and how they feel about each other. In this movie, they're all like, yes. it just feels like filler. Like I love the Scorpion song, but also like that entire scene did not need to be in the movie where Arjun goes no. on a business trip and, and sees a belly dancer with his colleagues. And she's talking about how like, I don't know, the, the scorpion's venom gets into you and you feel the poison and it makes you crazy or something. Like, I was expecting him to, like, full-on cheat on Lisa in that moment. That would have been dramatic. It would have been interesting. Oh, that would have been great. It would have been, I wouldn't say great, but it would have been interesting. It doesn't happen. It's a cool song, but, like, that whole thing didn't even need to exist. And that's how I felt. Right, about but it. I Maybe think that's, that's where in, it was going. I think <laughs> that they, they left on the cutting room floor. I think that's in keeping with the mores of this movie and perhaps of the culture as well, though. I mean, I don't think you need to have him have sex with the belly dancer to get that he's sort of tempted outside of his marriage. But he's uncomfortable. He's visibly uncomfortable the entire time. I agree with you, Patrick. And I was like really paying close attention to this scene. And like he like tells his friends like, yep, go go dance with her, go dance with her. And he looks like he just doesn't want to be there the whole time. So I was like, why are we even seeing this? I don't know. I my my read was that he was tempted. He was tempted by the fruit of another. Mm. That was mm. that was what I was feeling anyway. But yeah, the 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 musical numbers sure, absolutely super, superfluous. But I think, you know, that's what happens. They're always superfluous in these movies and honestly, musical numbers are superfluous in 85% of the American musicals that you see too, you know, I mean, Disagree. that's one of the things that pisses me off about musicals. I, I love the basic concept of a musical, but so often the actual musical numbers do very little to advance the plot and are just there to have another fucking song. Music, man, nothing. Every number advances the plot in the music, man. Umbrella, Actually haven't um, seen the um, music, umbrellas man. Umbrellas of Cherbourg. The whole thing is a musical and every line of music advances the plot. Um, okay, well, I'm not saying... I mean, obviously, yes, there are musicals that I love where the music does advance the plot, but so many... I mean, have you seen a fucking Rodgers and Hammerstein musical before? Like, so many of the great American musicals just stop dead to drop in a musical number. Also, Umbrellas of Cherbourg is not American, but... French, I mean, I'm sorry, I, French. I, I love the concept of musicals just so often the music is superfluous. This movie, let me put it this way, this movie made me long... For the musical numbers of Booth. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the musical numbers in this are more like music videos that are like tie. Yes. They're like promotional tie-ins to the movie that like might've been released on like India's version of like VH1 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> to promote it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it. part of that is because the actors are not actually singing the song. That's I, true. I, I think it's super weird. If I remember correctly, like in a Boothnoth, one of the reasons, there were three reasons that Boothnoth's numbers like hit with me. And it's because one, the actors are singing the song sometimes. Two, they're interestingly staged. And three, the music is actually catchy. The music in this was not memorable. They were not interestingly staged and the actors are not singing them. So it's just like, Oh, Ah, we're just stopping. Okay. Music. Disagree. I agree with you for all of that. And those are fantastic points. 
the one point where I would disagree with you, and this is why I wrote this in my notes, the Scorpion song with the belly dancer is actually sung by the belly dancer. Yes, and you're, the right, song, you're right. And the song is catchy as fuck. The rest of the movie, it's just like, it's like what you see when you go to like a Korean karaoke place and you pull up a Tom Petty song and it's just a video of like two, <laughs> two sad Korean people with umbrellas in the rain feeding ducks that have nothing to do with the song itself. <laughs> <laughs> as running down Scorp- a dream plays <laughs> that scorpion number is sensational though i mean I, I agree that all the other ones are pretty shoddy but the scorpion one i mean it looks like they spent more money on that than half of the movie put together you got you know the choreography is amazing you got hundreds of people in the frame you got you know fire you got sets you got it, it, it's a it's a it's, it's fantastic i thought it was animated wow. when i first saw it Wow. You thought it was animated. Wow. <laughs> it looked like something like, from a like cartoon. Ralph, Ralph, the reality Ralph. is so heightened. The camera movement. <laughs> it, Ralph Baxter was rotoscoping, did some real magic there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. God, I mean, God it bless was, the. It was fine. God bless the Scorpion song. Well, let's let's move on and get down to the fucking meat of this this climax of this movie because it's not long after we find out the backstory of what went down in the in the revolt with our spy friend um, that you know Lisa's possessed. It's all hands on deck to try to save her. There's some artificial time deadline enforced, like oh, by the time the clock hits midnight, the devil will have her soul forever. You know how that goes. Anyway. Uh, so we have, you know, our, our atheist hero. We have the priest who we're sure is going to save the day. Uh, that's basically it. The, the care key, the house, uh, caretaker is, is there too. He doesn't have a lot to contribute to the effort. And, you know, some of this, some of this, uh, exorcism stuff is just truly sensational. Yeah. We got beds floating, though she's floating. She's spooky. Um, she's making a really lot of it is kind of pulled from the gurgling noises. And like, we see her like upside down at different points with her, like makeup around her eyes. Like it's truly creepy i would say dude she fucking eats a cat that's one of the moments that will i feel like will just haunt me and will stick in my head like i think one of the first times we see her sort of possessed she's crouched on the stairs with her eyes bugged out just sort of like giggling to herself eating a fucking cat or some kind of animal it's a raccoon but it is and it's a raccoon it's creepier than anything in the exorcist like that is that scene is just so fucking bizarre it's like it's like you know the movie Haosu, the the Japanese yeah. kind of bonkers weirdo horror movie. It was like something yeah. from that, but played serious, and it it chilled me. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and so it's really unsettling. But here's the interesting thing: the priest does his his best and basically just gets fucked. The priest dies, or he gets mortally wounded, and then he he's never seen again. Um, so he dies, and. <laughs> yeah, and so then it's basically just a it's just a showdown between Lisa, possessed Lisa, and uh our hero, our atheist hero. And sensational uh action in the in the foyer of this mansion. She's floating up the pillars, she's going upside down, she's has telekinesis she's got the demon voice it's it's amazing uh long story short he realizes that he just can't physically get this demon out of her so he's a broken man and he decides he's going to uh and to uh, unrenounce his faith 
and he becomes devout again and he hugs her and he starts doing his chants again and drives the demon out that way and what a beautiful story well and thematically i was fascinated actually by the priest being just getting blown the fuck out because i thought this movie was setting us up for okay he renounced hinduism now we've got the priest coming in so the overall idea is going to be all right well christianity is the true way but no the the priest gets fucked up and the true hero of the movie is lord hanuman you know the the moral of the story is she should have stuck with hinduism it makes sense with the colonialist the the criticism of colonialism in this movie that that would be the yeah. case yeah, yeah, but it's funny because the priest is not uh he he may represent colonialism, but he is a good guy. There's nothing unsavory about his character through the whole movie other than that his technique. Well, he's got the work. he's he's, yeah. he's he's praying to the wrong god. He's a good guy, yeah, but he's I got guess, the wrong god. But I, I I thought that was kind of weird. Like I was thinking of you know in America, if you had the same sort of story where someone was like, you have Kevin Sorbo <laughs> renouncing Christianity, and then you know there's there's like a Muslim cleric or something who tries to help him with a problem and just gets killed, and then he finds God again and and saves the day. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, you know, cr- Christianity is like a, like like two percent of India's population or something. So it's kind of like Duncan on a on a pretty small minority there but that's fine i guess whatever um i I can tell you that i can imagine like a devout hindu audience loving this shit i was almost standing up out of my chair cheering when he starts doing the chants again (laughs) um and and drives out the demon so i can only imagine what it would mean to me if i were actually uh, uh invested in in that uh faith yeah, I mean, because obviously I was hoping for, you know, somebody needs to make a good atheist possession movie where there's just an uh, atheist hero who's like, fuck all this, you know, dogma bullshit. We're going to cast out the demon without crosses and Jesus prayers and whatever. We're just going to use science. We're going to be Matt Damon in The Martian, but we're going to be driving out a demon. <laughs> I don't remember shit about the Martian, I mean, but I, I'm sure I'm that's a dank joke if I did. We've talked about in the in the Devil and Father Amort episode about how I just don't fundamentally I'm not fundamentally scared by possession stories because it's all just like fairy tale nonsense to me. So I like that. I like the idea of like the possession is real, but it's atheists dealing with it and they have to kind of like confront the fact that they've like resigned themselves to not being to not having any sort of faith, and yet it turns out that that might be important. Doodly 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 exactly. Do, there do. we go. <laughs> Somebody do the whistle because I can't. I I don't do music on on the, the show. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's beautiful, and like she's levitating, he's grabbing onto her feet. The camera works terrific. It's a very uh, the the climax of this movie gets your your. your pulse pounding i don't care who you are yeah there's some good effects good possession shit it's thrilling it's good it's good it's fine it's great and then like the the falling action is them like reconciled you know they're they're leaving the mansion and then just like a hilarious and somewhat unnecessary shot of someone wheeling out the 10 foot portrait of gayatri <laughs> on a on a car oh, yes. <laughs> just wobbling on the back of the card as the credits roll <laughs> 
Great. Uh, a but, film. I, I feel even better about this now that we've talked about the whole thing, now that I've relived it in full. Maybe I'll, re- uh, maybe I'll revise my rating to uh, view it. But y- you know what? Like, I'm a hopeless romantic. Me seeing a guy and it's his wife, and we know what he's given up in his life to be with this woman. And she's possessed by a demon that doesn't just want to possess somebody, but is trying to destroy her specifically because she's the reincarnation of the woman who killed him. Uh, and, you know, is compelling her to like cut her own wrists up in front of him. That's compelling to me. That's more compelling to me than like The Exorcist, where it's like some like, you know, eight year old girl that I barely know who's just like in a bad puking. Right. And not to like beat this horse to death all over again, but I feel like it wouldn't have that resonance to me if not for the weirdly long flashback sequence. That's that's our movie pretty much. Um, very weird payoff that I wasn't expecting by the end of this thing uh it's, it was just so bizarre to me because i and you should have seen it coming and i was wondering i was like is this guy gonna take back his faith is that, is that what that's about but there's so much misdirection especially with the catholic character that i was like maybe this is just i should have known better but i thought maybe this guy's just gonna be an atheist for the I whole i thought movie. so too i thought wow this is really <laughs> this is really kind of transgressive and um uh, progressive, you might say, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, so it was a little disappointing to see the reversion. But I mean, I also still, it was, I like I said, I was still cheering when he started doing the chants again. Well, and you know what? More power to it for uh, sort of making me go on as much of a journey as far as its themes and what it was trying to say about religion as it did. Because at first, I was like, "Oh, really? Are we making sort of a bold pro atheist statement?" And then I was like, oh, no, actually, we're saying Christianity is the one true way. And in the end, it's a it's a pro Hindu statement. But, you know, again, credit to it, I guess, for committing as hard as it did to those sort of thematic twists and turns. Sure. It feels it feels feels a little bit like propaganda to me in the end. But uh, I did I did appreciate eh. the misdirect and the surprise at the end, even if I was a little bit disappointed by it. I should watch more Christian films. I should watch some Kevin Sorbo Some Left movies. Behind? That, that, yeah, like, I, like my, uh, there's probably some that are as, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, uplifting as this. I feel like the climax of most recent Christian films is just like, well, we got that guy fired from the school board. You know, or whatever. <laughs> you've, uh, you've seen enough horror films. You need to go deeper now into true terror. Oh, Chris, if yeah. you want to see some Christian horror films, there's a, a quadrilogy that I know of that's on Amazon right now. We'll talk off cast. Sounds fascinating. Okay, great. Well, what the hell are we watching next week? There's a lot of good stuff on Netflix right now. I think we're going to go with Vincenzo Natali's Splice film that uh, came out quite a while ago. That was... Looks kind of looks kind of kinky. Uh, I kind of Cronenbergy. I was interested in it when it came out, and it just kind of fell off my radar. But I uh, just today was listening to him on the I guess shout out to another podcast. He was on Best Movies Never Made, and he was discussing his script for an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's High Rise that never got made and it's a pretty fascinating listen and it made me want to dig deeper into his filmography. So this was actually on my list of, uh, picks last time. Uh, I actually saw this in the theater Wow! and I'm curious to revisit it because I remember feeling sort of 
a bit underwhelmed based on the reviews at the time, but still enjoying it. And I'm curious to see how it sits with me. Probably, what, a fucking decade later? This has to be a 10-year-old movie at this point. Wow, this came out uh, just under a year after 1920, actually. So let's see how it wow, holds up. Wow, so it's more than a decade old. Yeah. Is Vincenzo Natale someone I'm supposed to know? Uh, he directed the first Cube movie. He did oh. In the Tall Grass, the Stephen King Joe Hill oh. adaptation on Netflix recently. That was kind of his... Uh, return to fame after after Splice sort of failed at the box office. He directed six episodes of Hannibal. Oh shit! Really? Wow! Yeah. Really connecting the dots here. Full All right, well, that's good to know. I'll have. He to... directed uh, seven. He solved a cold case once. <laughs> nice. Okay, so he's been <laughs> active. That's great. Wait, do you mean he actually directed one of the episodes no. of the show you've been watching? No, I mean he solved one. He solved, I'm just fucking around. Oh, oh okay. well, you you trolled me well, Chris. Well, I will have to find out what episodes of Hannibal he directed and and bring that perspective to the table next time. Very excited to watch Splice. So excited that you picked it, and I think that wraps us up for this week. Yeah, just about. Uh, it's not a horror movie, but if you haven't seen Ex Machina, it's on Netflix. You should watch. Oh, it. I need to finally see that. Love Alex Garland. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what so made you think of Ex Machina? I was just looking at the looking at titles related to Splice on Netflix, and it came up. Oh, okay, yeah. And we're never going to cover it. So, but if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Decent movie, good movie. Yep. All right. Well, next time we'll be watching Splice. We hope you'll be there. And I guess that's it for this week for every horror movie on Netflix. I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. I'm Stephen. And he's Jay. (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) 